I was a teacher who loved my subjects and cared about helping students along on their journey. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, I'm joined by the longest-serving faculty member at Sarah Lawrence College, Charlotte Doyle. And I'll be turning over the podcasting reins to Christina Kasman, our college archivist, and just an all-around lovely conversation between Christina and Charlotte, and I think you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. Before we start, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue to find our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu slash library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians or using our sewing machine or 3D printer, which you're probably hearing in the background right now. I'm printing turtles as we speak. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. My plan for season three of this show is to produce an episode for every week of the semester. So stay subscribed and new episodes will arrive every single Friday all the way up until winter break. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. So I'll do a short introduction. I'll give our names, the time and place, so people know where we are when they hear this recording later um, for the purposes of the recording. I'm Christina Kassman, the College Archivist. Today's date is April 28th, 2023, and I am here with Charlotte Doyle and our colleague Tim Kale. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, We really appreciate you talking with us, especially since you are currently the longest-serving faculty member here at Sarah Lawrence. Um, What time did you, when did you arrive at Sarah Lawrence? I arrived in the fall of 1966. So we're going to work towards the fall of 1966, and we are going to start, if you wouldn't mind, starting with a little biographical sketch. Tell us a little bit about beginning of your life to here at Sarah Lawrence. Okay. Uh, I was born in Vienna, Austria. My parents brought me to this country when I was two and a half years old. So I feel much more American than anything else. Uh, I went to Philadelphia Public Schools. My high school was the academic high school for girls at that time, a Philadelphia high school for girls, they called it, not young women. (laughs) And uh, then I went to Temple University and discovered that I enjoyed psychology and went to the University of Michigan for a PhD in psychology. Not the kind that treats anyone or does any good, mainly, <laughs> mainly research psychology. And, but I was, within psychology, I was intellectually restless. I started out in what today would be called neuroscience, but at the time was called physiological psychology. 
And my mentors I worked with got a job at the University of Chicago. And he asked me to come with him as his research assistant. And I thought about it, and I thought, do I, I'm interested in physiological psychology, but is operating on animals really what I wanted to do? And I decided, no. And so my PhD was in general psychology, general experimental psychology, to be sure. But I was still restless. I really didn't know what it was that I wanted to do. Uh, I got a job teaching at Cornell, and they were very interested in what I was going to do. And <laughs> <laughs> but I was unsettled. I was also married to a man who was interested in becoming a playwright. And then I got a call from uh, a graduate school buddy of mine asking me if I would be interested in a job at Sarah Lawrence. And can I, can I ask who the graduate school buddy was? His name was Michael Brown. And he was here, and he was about to leave to go to one of the city universities, but he thought that he he thought that I and Sarah Lawrence would be a good match. Uh, partly because I left out that as part of the PhD program, we all had an opportunity to teach, and part of that was to teach for somebody else for one class, and then we would have our own classes. I was very nervous. I told my husband, this is never going to work. I can't tell a joke. <laughs> and, um, and as soon as I walked into the classroom, a kind of magic happened. I felt at home. Conversation was easy. And it was very fulfilling. And so then I taught for several years at the University of Michigan. And I knew that teaching was going to be part of my life because there was something really satisfying about it for me, a combination of a very human job related to pleasure in intellectual things. So, when, so Michael Brown knew my reputation as a teacher, and he thought that I would enjoy Sarah Lawrence. And he said, why don't you call, if you're not sure, why don't you come and look? So I came and looked. And then it just made sense with my husband's aspirations and my liking teaching. It seemed like a good fit, and it was. <laughs> Clearly. Because <laughs> we're still here. <laughs> yes, yes. Do you remember what it was like 
When you arrived here at Sarah Lawrence in 1966, did you notice significant differences between this, like the classroom experience in Michigan and the classroom experience here? The classroom experience in Michigan was about with a group of 25 to 30 students. It was very different with 15 students. And then, of course, the conference system, which I'm sure I was awkward with at first, <laughs> but I realized that I knew my students better than I ever did at Michigan or Cornell, which I had yes. taught at for two years. I had a reputation of someone who knew my students, but compared to the knowledge of Sarah Lawrence, uh, there was really no comparison. So as soon as I came, even though I made various missteps, what I was asked to do and what I did really fit. Uh, would you be willing to talk about some of the missteps or would you like to talk about what was your greatest triumph? You can choose. Ah. <laughs> uh. I didn't know how to organize a course on my own. I had always taught out of textbooks. I didn't know how to guide students in conference yet. Um, but I think of it, we bumbled through well enough. <laughs> but it, it takes a while to understand how to teach here. But it was always a pleasure with, with you know, with a little bumble here and there. It, it was a pleasure. Was your growth as a teacher here at Sarah Lawrence, did you think that came out of kind of the relationships primarily with your students? Or did you learn from your colleagues? Or was it a combination of the two? It was a combination, but mainly it was from the students. Uh, the first class I taught, was was in social psychology, which I barely knew myself. <laughs> but I had uh, juniors and seniors. And somehow we got into uh, a teasing relationship about whether what I was doing was Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> and they would tell me this is and this isn't, and sometimes I would modify, and sometimes I wouldn't. And the last day of class, they brought in, and at the time, uh, as now, 18-year-olds could drink it, they brought in champagne and strawberries. And they knew I wouldn't know the Sarah Lawrence tradition of an end-of-class party. And so they did it for me. And, and I thought that was lovely. It's really lovely. So I had wonderful relations with students. And I was gradually learning how to... I, I was learning certain things about how to teach at Sarah Lawrence. One of them was to teach less. 
not in terms of the amount of reading I assigned, but just not try to... It, it's traditional at universities to have textbooks where you cram knowledge into it, expect students to memorize it, and which they, half of which they forget in a year. And so I learned to teach less. I started out giving take-home exams. I switched from that to papers pretty early on and learned how much deeper the learning is when students write papers. It sounds like you learned a lot from the students um, in the broader sense of your kind of intellectual development. Were there people that you considered mentors? Who did you learn from, both as a professional and as a psychologist? I was very lucky. Well, I have to start the story with my being a little impudent. <laughs> um, I... I was originally assigned an office on the third floor of one of the old dorms between two student bedrooms and told that if I needed to use a restroom, I should knock at the door. <laughs> and I thought that was unacceptable. So, and I wanted to find the other psychologists. Well, it turned out there were two psychologists who had offices <laughs> in a cellar. <laughs> and, you know, to call it a basement is a euphemism. It was a cellar. And one had offices here and the other had offices here. So sort uh, of across the hall, down the hall in this cellar. Well, and between them, there was kind of a hole and then an opening. <laughs> and then there were two doors that went into a classroom. And they invited me to come down for tea. And I said to them, I'm moving here. <laughs> I moved in between the two. It was actually kind of an entrance to a classroom. I didn't care. <laughs> I used bookcases and made a kind of entrance for them to the classroom, independent of me. And those two people were Gertrude Baltimore and Marjorie Franklin. Do you know either of them? Not personally, no. <laughs> well... They were brilliant, thoughtful, sensitive. They really opened up my mind to approaches to psychology I knew nothing about. Um, and we became, within the psych department, and in the larger college, we became a kind of team. They became my two best friends. 
What a felicitous encounter. That oh, you <laughs> it, it was really wonderful. Um, sometimes we read a challenging work together. Uh, Marjorie and I co-taught for a series of years. Uh, it really was an intellectual awakening and a kind of friendship which is very precious. That's, that sounds like such a wonderful experience. And, you know, I know you saw the list of questions. I, one of my questions was, how do you, do you feel that working in Sarah Lawrence in particular shaped your scholarship? Certainly this chance, you know, co of colleagues. But can you talk a little bit more about Yes, that? I can. Um, I didn't have an area. This was one of my problems at Cornell. I didn't have an area. In psychology, you were supposed to have an area. But I didn't have one. I was sort of a generalist who wrote an introductory textbook. And Cyril Lawrence, at the time, did not, was not a publisher parish place. There's more emphasis now on publication than there used to be. And so I felt a kind of freedom to try stuff. And one of the things I tried, which is something which had always interested me, was looking at the creative process. And I began by teaching a course in it, and the students and I read things together. And Gertrude, and especially Marjorie, were very, very supportive of that. And that has remained my area since. So. I had an area. <laughs> I finally had an area. <laughs> Did it feel like that at the time? You, it was sort of developing, and you thought, this is it. This is, this is where well, I'm staying. Yes. Well, when I taught the creative process for the first time, again, of course, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. We were you know, reading this and that and the other thing. And the students, it was supposed to be a one-semester class, and the students asked me if it couldn't become a year class. And I thought about it, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to interview some of the creative people here at Sarah Lawrence and study the creative process by having them tell from the first inkling to the final product how a particular creation came out. It was in the tradition of Rudolf Arnheim, who taught here for many years. He did a kind he did sort of the development of Picasso's Guernica. You know this through through sketches, and I thought 
isn't it great to study the creative process directly and just have people tell the story of how it came to be? And so my class and I together familiarized themselves and myself with uh, the poetry of Jane Cooper, the music of Meyer Kupferman. I can't remember who the third one was this minute. But we did these three interviews. And I realized not only now did I have an area, but I had a method. And that is something that I have been doing since. Um, I was particularly struck by your work in this area with children and children talking about the development of stories. How did you start working with children? Oh, that was an accident. (laughs) Um, I had visited friends in California and the friends had a five-year-old child. I was not a developmental psychologist at all. And we left the day the five-year-old boy was going to go to school for the first time. And so a few days later, I telephoned and asked, how was David's first year of school? And his father didn't want to answer me. It was very strange. It was weird. And I was very nosy, of course. And I pressed as gently as possible. And it turned out that in David's first day of school, he was tested. And he had passed uppercase letter recognition and he had passed lowercase letter recognition, but he had flunked random number recognition. And I hit the ceiling. I said, testing a child the first day of kindergarten is crazy. And a child who passes upper and lowercase letter recognition is not going to have any trouble learning random number recognition. What are they doing? And I, I, I think I got up on the soapbox and was ranting. And then I realized the father had been dyslexic and that somehow what happened to his son brought back all his memories of feeling stupid because he was dyslexic. And I thought to myself, oh, I've got to write to David and tell him not to worry. And I thought, well, how do you write to a five-year-old child? And I thought, well, maybe I should tell a story. And I thought, I want the story of someone with a problem and it gets solved. 
So I thought, well, suppose I did it with animals. What animal has a problem? And I thought, well, maybe a skunk has a problem because he gets frightened and then this awful, terrible, horrible smell comes out of him and then none of the other animals will play with him. So I wrote it. And it came out, you know, I worked at it on it for a couple days. And then I thought, gee, this is fun. <laughs> and I thought, what did I do here? Now, Sarah Lawrence had an early childhood center, of course. And the head of the early childhood center was someone I didn't know well. I never had anything to do with the children. And I said, Sarah, I wrote this thing, and I don't know what I did. Can you give me some perspective on it? Is this Sarah Wilford? That was Sarah Wilford, yes. And she said, sure, send it to me. And the next day she called me, and she said, Charlotte, this is a great story for five-year-olds. Come read it to the children. And I said, I don't know how to read to children. <laughs> and she, being Sarah, said, well, come one week, and I'll read to the children, and the next week you'll read to the children. So we did that, and I had the pleasure of children responding to a story. And then I started hanging out at the Early Childhood Center with the idea of writing other stories, which I did. And I also enjoyed observing the children. And that somehow led to teaching developmental psychology which I always do with this, every student observing and learning how to observe at the Early Childhood Center. So that became my second area, children's books, and resulted in my eventually uh, developing with Sarah. Sarah became a friend and Together, we developed a, a class on uh, children's literature. Uh, would you remember what, like, about what year that was? It must have been a fairly early class on children's literature. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be able to come across it. I'm sure it will be in the footnotes for this oral history. <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, we're talking about how, we talked about how you shaped your scholarship. I think one question I had, um, you had a lot of interest. You weren't sure what your area was, and you picked two key scholarship areas that you developed a lot. Is there an area you'd like to tackle that you haven't had a chance to develop yet or would have liked to explore earlier? I've continued doing research on the creative process. I just finished a book. Congratulations. On 
the creative process, colon stories from the arts and sciences. Oh. I went through a children's book phase where I wrote and published seven children's books. But that phase, the children's book muse decided to go somewhere else. <laughs> so I haven't done that lately, but I'm still very interested in children's books and how they affect children. Um, I'm interested also in general things. Like I recently wrote an answer to an article on how to define creativity. That's still in the general creativity area, but it's looking at, and I've written a couple of articles on theoretical approaches to creativity. I've always been very interested in theory, I have to say. And, and so that's been another area that I've explored. Is there a particular, I mean, you've, you've written in, in almost, you've written fiction, you've written children, right? You've written standard academic articles, you've written textbooks. Is there a genre that gives you the most pleasure to, to work in? Or is the, the mix part of, part of what's attractive? There are different pleasures, is all, is all I can say. But I feel like I'm addicted to writing. And I'm very unhappy if I'm not writing anything. Do you think that's a good addiction? Pardon? It seems like a productive addiction to have. Well, <laughs> I think it's better than heroin. <laughs> um, yeah, it, writing is very satisfying. That's one of the things that has been true all the way through. As a graduate student, I ended up writing an introductory text. I've written a second introductory text solo. Um, there's something about the writing process and the way the writing itself guides thinking that I find very special. So to that point, um, can you talk a little bit about your writing process and how it's developed? Well, I'd have to tell you about, let's put it this way. Every project is different. But Every project either has early start or just a hint that something interesting is going to happen. And then there is a process of what I call getting the project in my bones, which I guess really means getting it in my brain. So that when I'm not working on it, I may be taking a walk or washing dishes or reading something, and suddenly I get an idea. My head has been working on it while I was doing something else. 
But that doesn't happen once in a project. It happens many times. And then, if I am lucky, I experience what psychologists call flow, where it feels as though the writing is writing itself. I wrote an article called Creative Flow as a Unique Cognitive Process, which talked about this experience of flow. Did you have an experience of flow while you were writing? Did you have an experience of flow while you were writing that article? I don't. Know. <laughs> it was an unfair question. I, well, let's put it this way. I know it came together. I was thinking about changing tack to talk about kind of more the structure of Sarah Lawrence and kind of working here and the, the period in which you started teaching here. Is that all right? That's fine. Fantastic. So you arrived here in 1966. You were awarded tenure. Is it 1972 or 73? We actually don't have it formalized in our records. Do you remember? <laughs> Certainly not. Of course not. <laughs> Um, and you graduated, as you said, Temple from 1959, and you worked at a computer programmer at RCA. We haven't talked on that. I don't know if you'd be interested in talking about that, but I was really nosy and interested in, in that. Well, when I was an undergraduate, I enjoyed taking a course in mathematical logic. Then I needed some sort of job between college and graduate school. And because I knew symbolic logic and truth tables and things of that sort, computers were really just beginning. And RCA had a business computer, and they were in Camden, New Jersey, something I could place I could commute to. Mm -hmm. So I took a job as a computer programmer, and I was assigned programming mathematical functions for this digital zero-one computer in machine language. So I did it, and it was fun, and it was like doing crossword puzzles. It was also my first experience of business and how cutthroat it could be. Uh, but it was never going to be my career. I had already won a fellowship to the University of Michigan, and I knew I was going to go. As a placeholder, convinced you were making the right career choice. <laughs> and, and interesting. It was really a bit of learning about what the real world was like. How, you said cutthroat, but how was working in that corporate environment different than, say, a faculty governance environment like Sarah Lawrence? Well, I was definitely a junior, junior member of the team at RCA. And there were some other, there were very few other juniors. Didn't feel the same kind of respect and support. Though people were very nice, and I could have stayed there. But I was already on my way out when I came in, actually. And one of the great things, especially in the early days of Sarah Lawrence, was how much support there was for junior faculty. The senior, the college 
and the faculty was much smaller. And when I walked into the faculty cafeteria, I had been told I could sit down at any table. And so I did, and I discovered the senior faculty were looking for me. They knew a new psychologist had been hired, and they were welcoming, wanted to help me, and were interested. And I, I certainly didn't have that feeling at RCA. Even though everyone was, don't get me wrong, everyone was very nice, if there was some cutthroating, it didn't involve me in any way. It was just people a little higher up wanted to be even higher up and worked at making that happen. Right, more the nature of the industry rather than like personal experience with others. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm very interested in the sense of like camaraderie that you're describing in the Sarah Lawrence faculty. What did it feel like walking into the Sarah Lawrence faculty? You said as a new member, you felt people were very welcoming. How did you get in your, um, into the community, into governance in which you participate actively with the faculty members? I didn't understand. I was young and I didn't understand that everyone was also judging me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was unafraid. And during this time at faculty meeting, there were some really tense times. There was a sit-in. I would participate in conversations. And you're talking, just for the record of, the, of this, the, the 1969 Westland sit-in. Um, I know that you signed, in May 1969, you wrote and signed a petition for peace, um, not related to the, 19, to the Westland sit-in, obviously, but related to, to Vietnam. Can you talk about some other kind of tense moments and how you participated in those on campus and how you remember I them? Just, I just, my, my, what I always tried to do was to listen very hard. And I do this with students too, but it's just general. I listened very hard to what everyone was saying. And then I would, I would, like to say something that could kind of bridge what appeared to be unbridgeable gaps. And I would do it sometimes by talking, sometimes by making a motion. I hear now that younger faculty are afraid to talk at faculty meetings because they know they're being judged. Well, I didn't know I was <laughs> I didn't know I was being judged, so I just felt very free. There was this conversation, what shall we do about the sit-in? Oh, so I listened and I tried to be uh, productive and, and, and to help things along. And apparently people appreciated it participating as a positive action. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've been here since, again, uh, I'm going to say it again, 1966. It's 2023. <laughs> in that time, there must have been many initiatives that sort of were started in the college and not completed. 
things that came to fruition that started in the college. Can you talk about either or both um, something that, that was started and didn't come to fruition that you would have liked to see and something that started in the last 60 years and has blossomed that you've been interested in following? Or both. Or both. <laughs> um, the Center for Continuing Education, uh, which I taught in one year, and was an absolutely great experience, is certainly one. And I've seen the development of other graduate programs. My friend Marjorie Franklin started a program in child development. Masters, which is still running and I think is uh, a very wonderful experience, both for the students and the field. I'm sure there are others, but they don't immediately come to mind. It's a long period to, 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 yeah. to ask to think through. Yeah. Um, then maybe I should get a little bit more philosophical. <laughs> uh, what oh. meaning? I have the question there. So what meaning does Sarah Lawrence College have for you? Well, it gives me a life. What do you mean by that? It structures my time. It allows me to do things that I care about. It has, I have the pleasure of the support of wonderful colleagues. I have an opportunity for intellectual development. So those are all parts of a life. Yep. And how would you, sort of in, in 20, Let's see, in 2066, which will be 100 years since you started working here, how would you like people to remember you, assuming that you're not here to participate? Oh, I'm, I won't <laughs> be here. I have no plans to be here then. I was a teacher who loved my subjects and cared about helping students along on their journey. Wonderful. I'm out of questions. Uh, Tim, did you have any questions you wanted to ask? I just had a question about how you talked about when you first walked into a classroom, you experienced this magic. Um, was the magic coming from the students, the material, uh, the connection you were having through the material, if you could describe what that magic is. The magic was, let, let me see if I, I, the answer is all of the above in interaction. It was the experience of these 30 students and I in a shared world thinking about materials. I remember what I was supposed to teach was um, how neurons worked. And somehow we were all on the same page. That's wonderful. That's great. Thank you. And, that's, and that magic doesn't happen every day in every class. But it happens 
often often enough that it's kept me here for over 50 years. Like some classes are just absolutely magical where the students understand almost from day one that what we are going to do in class is we are going to talk about the readings that have been assigned. They will have thought something. Now I ask them to write web posts. Earlier I just asked them to write comments. So they all come in having something to say. And the exchange of views, comments, examples, questions, critiques, where everybody is listening or talk, there's talking and there's everybody listening and then responding. And it just makes for something, it's creative. It, something emerges which is very special both in its intellectual content and the intellectual camaraderie. That was lovely. Thank you. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. Thank you to Charlotte for sharing your stories and your insights with us. And thank you to Christina Kasman, the college archivist, for taking over hosting duties this week and asking such great questions. If you'd like more from the SLC Library Podcast, then go back and listen to my other chats with staff members and students to tide you over until the next episode. Remember to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Music by Owen Anderson. Thank you for sharing your time with us one and all. We look forward to doing it again next week.